the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life. From health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being, changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Biology is no longer destiny. Our DNA doesn't determine our health as once believed. According to the new science of epigenetics, the majority of our genes are fluid and dynamic, and their expression is shaped by what we think and what we do. Joining me today to discuss how we can influence our genes by the choices we make every day is Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, a world-renowned pioneer in integrative medicine. Dr. Pelletier is a clinical professor of medicine at UCSF School of Medicine and former clinical professor of medicine at the Stanford School of Medicine. He is a peer reviewer for several medical journals and has appeared on media outlets to discuss his research. Dr. Pelletier has authored numerous books, including his latest, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. Welcome, Dr. Pelletier. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for your invitation. Looking forward to talking with you. Dr. Many people are concerned about their family history when it comes to health, and they believe that they're stuck with whatever diseases plague their loved ones. But new science shows that we have a profound influence over our health by the choices we make every day. Why is this the case? Well, uh, it's a common misconception, I think, among uh, the general population, but even among health professionals, that the gene is like a hard drive in a computer, and in various set of directions, instructions on everything from hair color to eyes to weight to diseases you will get, how long you will live, etc. And it's simply not accurate. Um, what we do know in the last seven or eight years with epigenetics uh, research is that probably 5 to 10% of what we see as adult health, adult longevity, uh, intelligence, uh, you know, pres- preservation of cognitive function, etc., cetera, uh, is due to, to genes that are monogenic or fully penetrant. In other words, they're really pushed and manifest themselves genetically. The other 90% of everything we experience from the age of about nine months through adulthood is determined by how we influence our genes, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that's so important, doctor. Think about that. 90 to 95% we control. And I, I get excited every time I hear that because it just gives you this freedom that you don't feel like you have a sentence. You know, I come from a family, my father had lung cancer, my sister had lung cancer, my mother had heart disease. So these would be the things that most people write off and say, well, those are my genes and that's pretty much my future. But what you're explaining to us is so exciting because it doesn't have to be that way. That's correct. And you've just articulated uh, it better than I could, is no matter what you're, you you have a push. So all of us have a push. Our genes are predisposing us to heart disease or cancer or irritable bowel syndrome or a a whole host of other conditions. But that's all it is. It's a push. It does not mean it becomes manifest. And so what we're really talking about in epigenetics, epigenetics, epi means above, around the gene. And around the gene, there is literally a molecular coding, has a terribly long name, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And they're like little rheostats. We turn them up or we turn them down. And the turning it up and turning it down is dependent on diet, stress, beliefs, 
uh, the environment, uh, our physical environment, psychosocial environment. So what we're really talking about is that we can influence, even if we're pushed in a particular direction, we can influence that positively if we want to, or we can slow it down or even eliminate it uh, from our genetic uh, inheritance. It is not deterministic. Is that what is meant when we hear about flipping the switch on or off biochemical markers? Correct. And it's uh, the on-off is a little, it's, it's a little simple, but it's more like a rheostat um, where you have a light in a room and you can turn it up very bright or you can turn it down very dim if you want to have a dinner party or something. So it, our, our genes really are acting more like a rheostat rather than on and off. They're never all off. They're never silent, what they would call a silent gene, and they're never fully expressed uh, except in rare disease again that show up within the first six to nine months. If you have a monogenic or what they call a fully penetrant genetic condition, it will show up within the first six to nine months of life. After that, um, it really is dependent on, again, this rheostat-like function through, through everything we do day in and day out will determine whether that shows up or is expressed or whether it is suppressed. Doctor, what do you feel is the best use of today's epigenetic research? Well, I think the, to me, the most important thing to convey to, to anyone is what we're talking about, which is you are not doomed by your genes, nor are you guaranteed a long life expectancy. So someone might say, well, my parents lived into their 90s, so I can eat and drink and do whatever I want. That's not the case. Um, you know, I, I think one of the places where we assume that genetics has the greatest influence on us is our longevity, how long we're going to live. And even that turns out to be false. There's actually a study that came out that the company Ancestry, which says does Ancestry.com, teamed up with a group of genetics researchers. And they published this study in genetics, which is the main uh, gene research journal. What they did is they took all of the people who have reported their data into Ancestry.com, and they created a 400 million person database. Now, that's staggering. Most research is based on a few hundred or a few thousand people. This is 400 million database of parents, I'm sorry, grandparents, parents, and children. What they wanted to see is did the life expectancy or the age at death of grandparents, parents affect the children, the grandchildren, or they looked at lifestyle factors like diet, exercise, physical fitness. Did those predict better the age of the uh, grandchild? And it turned out overwhelmingly that the lifestyle factors predicted longevity, not the genetic inheritance from their parents or grandparents. So I think that's a very dramatic instance of the fact that we assume and, and, and very often that, you know, the life expectancy is governed by our genes. It is even governed there, which I think is fascinating. So the best application of epigenetics is to relieve us, if you will, from the burden of feeling either that we have a guarantee, which we don't, or we have a vulnerability, which we don't. It is our choice, our selection, our involvement that makes the difference. Doctor, there's so much research that is showing the importance of lifestyle choices. Do you think that traditional medical practitioners are catching up with this information? Are they now seeing the connection between the way we live and eat with our overall health? <laughs> That's quite a challenging question. Mm -hmm. I. My, my opinion is yes, that medicine is changing. Uh, and I think what we see, we see integrative medicine, personalized medicine, uh, functional medicine. And, and those three phrases are all kind of descriptions or attempts to describe this integration of lifestyle with conventional medicine. Conventional medicine is basically pharmaceuticals and surgery, diagnosis of disease. That, that's the domain of medicine. But around that is then the domain of health, which is much larger. Most of us are healthier than sick. Most of us are healthier for most of our lives than not 
not well. Uh, so what we're really looking at is what is the larger picture for people day in and day out, year over year, in terms of influencing their lives. So what the new emphasis now is more on uh, bio, what are called biomarkers or basically biological indicators of your state of health. So all of us are familiar with cholesterol. I think everyone knows their total cholesterol at this point. That's a biomarker. If it's too high, it means a problem. If it's too low, it also means a problem. But if you had feedback, if you knew what your biomarker was and was it within an optimal range, and we can determine that for hundreds of bodily functions that are governed by genetics, then we can optimize those. We can bring those within range through all of the various lifestyle factors we've just been talking about. When you bring them within range, you optimize your mental faculties, your physical ability, your emotional, spiritual direction in life. And that, to me, is the, is the more interesting challenge uh, for the future. And medicine is beginning to recognize that. You find Scripps Institute and the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, all of them now have lifestyle programs wrapped around the care of diseases, including cancer, heart disease, irritable bowel. So we're seeing even the major medical institutions are moving in this direction. Doctor, you say that there are at least seven biological pathways that determine which major diseases or states of health a person will potentially experience. What are they and how can we learn this information? Right. Uh, This is conventional uh, biochemistry. Uh, There are really seven biochemical pathways in the body. And these are all governed by a relatively small set of genes. So this is how the genes, when I said the genes express themselves. So when the gene turns on or turns off or goes dormant, each of these pathways are in turn affected. So just quickly, just to rattle through them, and we can go back to any one of them, is methylation. And methylation is like punctuation. So it says, here's the genetic code, here's a period. That's the end of that statement. Uh, There's inflammation. We're all familiar with inflammation. We think it's a risk for heart disease, but on the positive side, it also is when we get a minor cut. That's inflammation. So we need inflammation. It's not bad. I mean, there are so many diets now that promise you to eliminate inflammation. Well, that's nice, but it's misguided. We need a certain amount of inflammation. The other third one is oxidative stress. And so we all, whenever metabolism occurs in the presence of oxygen, we get byproducts. And if it's excessive under stress, then we get excessive byproducts, and that's damaging. A fourth is detoxification. So the body is continually purging ourselves biochemically and ridding ourselves of cancer cells. All of us have cancer cells at any given point in time. Our immune system surveils it, eliminates them, et cetera. Then immunity is the fifth, and immunity is simply how does your body know self from not self? Who are you versus the bacteria, the viruses, the other kinds of pathogens that are in our environment? And the sixth is lipid metabolism. So it's really how well do you digest fats? And we always hear about uh, the no-fat diet. We've got to eliminate fats. That's simply false. There are people that can consume very high-fat diets. They have a high, highly expressed uh, gene for lipid metabolism. They can consume fats all day long, and it doesn't harm them. So for them to go on a low-fat diet doesn't make any sense. In fact, it may even create certain hormonal deficiencies. And the last is mineral metabolism. So mineral metabolism is just that. It's all the trace elements, the zinc, the copper, all the various kinds of uh, sub-fractions within foods that, on which we depend for our health. So those are the seven pathways, and each of them are influenced by genes, and the genes are influenced, again, by what we do in our, our lifestyles. From what you've described, to me, it sounds like, with all of the studies and, and what we know about genetics, it, it really sounds like we're moving away from the one-size-fits-all approach to wellness and, and really getting specific tailoring things to a person's composition. Completely agree. <clears throat> and again, you've just described it perfectly. Um, the Francis Collins, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, um, he's called it precision medicine. 
and, or personalized medicine. And what it means is that everything we tend to do in healthcare and medicine is one size fits all. So one diet should fit everyone. One prescription should fit everyone. One particular drug is good for every conceivable kind of disease. And again, that's just not accurate. So what the epigenetics allows us to do is there are tests, there are assays for genes and blood, and soon they'll be for the biome or the intestinal tract that tell us who we are. So if someone, you know, we're, we're barraged by conflicting information on diet, ketogenic diets, grapefruit juice diets, high fat, low fat, Mediterranean, you name it, everyone has a dietary miracle. Well, the problem is that unless we know who we are, how do we know what a good fit is? And there are now genetic tests that can get down to very specific information. They can literally tell you, eat uh, almonds, not walnuts or vice versa, eat walnuts, not almonds, because mm -hmm. genetically you're predisposed to be able to digest one better than the other. So this world of epigenetics opens up personalized medicine, and it's taking pharmacology, it's taking foods, uh, exercise, stress management, environmental exposures, down to the level of what do you as an individual really need rather than a general guideline. It's like if you uh, buy a, a dress or a suit. I mean, one is buying it, the second is the tailoring. So we're talking about tailoring these guidelines to individual use. Doctor, the average person visits his or her physician for a checkup or for routine testing or, or even medical care, and they're given pretty standard treatments on average. For someone who's listening to this conversation and says, you know, I really want to take advantage of what's happening in science and I want to get more tailored care, but the doctor isn't doing that. How can the person find out this information and what type of physician should he or she be visiting? That's a great question. There is a program uh, at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. It was started by a very good friend, longtime colleague, Andrew Weil, a uh, well-known author, and it's called the Center for Integrative Medicine. And they've trained physicians who are all over the United States. And all of them have been trained in exactly what we're talking about. They spend two years, they all have conventional medical training and they've all usually been out in practice for a number of years. And they go back to school for a two year postdoctoral program in which they learn herbal medicine, uh, Ayurveda, osteo osteopathy and chiropractic mind-body medicine techniques. So they learn these other techniques and how to integrate them into conventional medicine. So again, if you go to the University of Arizona School of Medicine, Center for Integrative Medicine, there's a roster of physicians all over the United States that are practicing in the way we're talking about. The other is there's the uh, functional medicine group. I believe it's called the Society for Functional Medicine. Again, physicians who practice using predominantly nutrition, stress management techniques, and other interventions for, for uh, more integrated care. Um, the last thing I think is that you're right that when you go and you get a blood test in an annual physical or any kind of physical, you probably get 12 to 15 blood markers back most of which, honestly, is quite meaningless unless it's extremely high or extremely low, and then you pay attention to it. What you really need to get are some of the more what they call advanced biometrics. So there are blood tests from some companies that now look will look at 100 or more subfractions that really tell you the state of your health. And you can access those without going to a doctor, without a prescription. You can get them online and you can have their self-administered and they're usually self-explanatory. They usually will be coupled with a coaching session. So when you get your information back, you can sign up to then work with a coach to more completely understand what your blood biomarkers mean and what the genetics are that have led to those blood biomarkers and how you can influence them. So this is all something that we're not talking about a theoretical care five years down the road. We're talking about you have to do a little shopping and you have to be careful. I think the most important thing to remember if you do get genetic testing, uh, that it's simply a piece of information. It's not deterministic. If it says you have a 40% likelihood of disease X, what that means is you have the same markers as 40% of the people who develop that disease. What it doesn't tell you is that 
there are 60% of the people with the same markers who don't. And how do you avoid developing that disease if you have that marker? So if you get a genetic test, just remember, it's just one point of information. It's not a sentence. It's not pointing the bone. Doctor, in your book, you quote functional medicine pioneer, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who stated that disease is a delusion. And, and I think that's such an interesting statement. What does that mean, that disease is a delusion? Well, uh, Dr. Bland is, I think, brilliant. Um, he's a biochemist and really develop this whole idea of functional medicine. And it simply means that disease is the end product, at least in his original research, of misplaced biochemistry. So eating high fat or high sugar or high red meat diets for a while does not show up as disease. But if you continually consume that kind of diet, if you will, the result is a disease. But the disease is an illusion in the sense of it's not inevitable. And if you made changes along the way biochemically in your body, you would not have to manifest that disease. And uh, so that's one dimension of the delusion of disease. The other part that he means, and I think he's very, very good about this, is that once a person is given a diagnosis, they tend to become the disease. They're not a person anymore. They're heart failure or they are uh, osteocarcinoma. You know, they're, they're a disease entity rather than a person who has a disease. Uh, and uh, Plato uh, actually or, uh, said it was more important to know what person has a disease than what disease a person has. And, I, and that's becoming very true. And so in that sense, the diagnosis or the label of a condition is an illusion. It's a guess. It's, it's something that you use to get compensation and to, re- to create a diagnosis for insurance purposes, it does not reduce the person to that disease. That's a dangerous illusion or delusion. And so I, I very much are, am in agreement with, uh, with Dr. Bland's observations. The book is Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. If you would like to get more information about Dr. Pelletier and his work, you can visit drpelletier.com. That's D-R, drpelletier.com. Doctor, in our final moments, for someone who's my age, middle age, and they've been living a certain lifestyle and they're now 40, 50, 60 years old, is it ever too late to make the changes that can impact our future, our health and wellness at the genetic level? I'm so glad you asked that. No, it is never too late. And I mean that quite literally. Um, Someone who's in their 70s, 80s, or even 90s can make really major, significant changes in their life that affect these biochemical pathways we just talked about that can have the the effect of extending their life expectancy, preserving their mental faculties. We can change genes at any stage of our life, any age, at any time. Dr. Pelletier, thank you so much for being here with us. This information, it's so exciting because it gives us so much power over the way we live our life, the way we age. And uh, as you said, it's never too late. So I think it's time that we all get going with it. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you very much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. To your health, 
Joining us today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Find Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Joan. It's so good to be back. So, Eileen, today we're going to discuss intuitive eating. Can you explain to us what that means? I certainly can. Intuitive eating is one name for natural eating, attuned eating, but basically, um, however one designates it uh, with a title, it means that uh, we were born knowing how to eat. Our bodies will tell us uh, when to eat, what to eat, and how much to eat. And we know this, Joan, because all we have to do is look at an infant feeding with its mom, and mom is paying attention to this child, and this child to inform mother that she is hungry will cry or will fuss or will squirm, and mom gives her bottle or breast, and you can watch the baby melt into the arms of the mother. And then at some point, the baby will either push mom away or turn her head or sometimes fall asleep. And the baby is basically saying to mom, I've had enough, of course, until the next time the baby gets hungry. We are wired like that, all of us, to be able to determine our hunger signals, to eat when we're hungry, to know how to nourish our bodies, and also to know when it's time to stop eating. So that's basically an overview of intuitive eating. Eileen, will following intuitive eating guidelines affect a person's weight? Um, that's a, uh, an interesting and a wonderful question. And the answer is uh, yes, no, maybe, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> okay. Um, because yeah, because um, we were born knowing how to eat. Um, some of us are already following that natural body rhythm. And so for these people who are already, whether it's by instruction or just intuitively knowing how to do this, with uh, proper fuel foods that will energize the body, um, for these people, for these women and men, by the way, also, uh, their weight will probably not change. Um, and so that's the no part. Um, the yes part is that for those of us, and I was one of those women who were dieting incessantly and were basically uh, controlling calories and not eating specific kinds of food groups, having good foods and bad foods um, so that some of the food that we want um, weren't allowable according to us. Um, for women like me who who ate, eat or ate in that kind of a way, um, it is possible that there will be weight gain because once you're starting to pay attention to your body's hunger rhythms, hunger and satiety rhythms, then you start to realize, oh, I'm, I need to eat more frequently than I did because I am getting hungry as opposed to deliberately foregoing a meal in order to save calorie input. So these women, like me, might, and I did, might gain weight. Now, did I gain 85 million pounds of weight? Absolutely not. But my weight had to get to, or my body had to manage the weight gain to get me to what is called either my set point range or natural weight is another way of framing that. Can you give us a few tips to help us become more mindful and to begin an intuitive eating practice? Uh, yeah, um, I can, certainly. And I love this because this is 
uh, what I had to learn myself. I had to become um, what I tell my clients intimate with my hunger. Um, and what I learned was that my body sends me uh, very specific hunger signals. And so I had to pay attention to those hunger signals. And when I was paying attention, I recognized that there were moments that came before uh, the real um, need to eat. There was just this, uh, a little low-level emptiness that might have happened or occurred. And then uh, 10, 15, 20 minutes later, I'm getting a more pronounced hunger signal. And there is the moment in time when we need to eat because our bodies are saying eat. Now, that's not necessarily according to the clock, but it's according to our body clock. And then, of course, there are those of us who have been, uh, we, and this is what we want to avoid, getting to this next stage of hunger, which is ravenous and famished. And in that moment in time, we want to eat everything in sight. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, what we want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. This is such a, a relevant topic. It's something that so many of us experience. And if we can learn to follow the tips and advice that you offer, I, I think that it would make a big difference in so many of our lives. So if you would like to learn more about Eileen and her work, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. Or as always, to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Everyone wants someone to love and spend time with, and searching for an ideal partner is a natural human tendency. Just about everyone dates at some point, yet few really understand what they're doing or how to get the best results. Today's guest, Dr. Stan Takin, author of Wired for Dating, offers powerful tips to help you find a compatible mate and go on to create a loving relationship. Dr. Takin is a clinician, researcher, teacher, and developer of a psychobiological approach to couple therapy. Welcome, Dr. Takin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Doctor, just about everyone wants to find love, but for many, it's difficult to do. Sometimes it even seems impossible. So, what is the main problem that people who are dating experience? Well, I think <laughs> mostly it's fatigue, uh, not wanting to date, feeling very uncomfortable, feeling dispirited. Uh, but I think there are most people that would dread dating, mm -hmm. I, I, especially uh, people who are a little bit older and having to return to the dating scene. It seems, uh, you know, that there are many ways to find people now online, of course, but it isn't any easier, I think. I think in some ways it's a little bit harder because people are not introducing each other as the way they used to do, mm -hmm. where you'd meet people at work, you'd meet people at a party, people down the street. Uh, you know, we tend to meet those who live closest to us now. We could meet somebody who's across the country or even in another, another country altogether and then decide whether we're going to uh, get together and meet and so on. So it's, 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 a, it's a different world in dating, for sure. Well, and, and, you know, taking it a step further about this different world, I am divorced, and so I'm back in that, I hate to say, older age person, but yeah, doing right. it again. I mean, you know, the thought of doing it again after 20-some-odd years of marriage, it's scary, and it is a different world. So what is the secret to building a successful relationship, especially for those of us that have gone through a failed one. I think rather than look for the person first, think about what the relationship should be. We really must start to rearrange our thinking now when it comes to pair bonding. And the old way, which is to, uh, and this is nothing wrong with this, uh, to be, of course, you're going to be attracted to somebody, you're going to be drawn to them. Uh, this is not about making lists and, uh, and checking them to make sure that everybody fits the list. But organize in one's mind 
how the relationship should be. And in this sense, think of it as a two-person system. Good for me, good for that person. In other words, should we put the relationship first? Is that the relationship I want? Uh, Should it be a relationship where we tell each other everything, where we have each other's backs, where we protect each other in public and private, where the go-to people? Um, I like to think of couples as being together based on a a mutual agreement and, and a basic interdependency Uh, to survive, right? We are in the foxhole together. We require that we uh, are experts on each other so that as we move through time together, we're in a system that we can absolutely trust. So envision the kind of relationship it should be. If that person does not see it the way you do, uh, if if there are deal breakers there in terms of lifestyle, in terms of what you believe in and where you want to point to the future, then pass that relationship and move on to the next. But think about the relationship. And that's, I think, really important because when we're young and, and we meet someone and we have that romantic notion that this is it and everything will just occur naturally. A, a, a true right. relationship just happens. But there's a lot of work that needs to go into it and a lot of thought. The work and thought, although in the beginning everything is work, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't know each other. It takes a good year to really get to know somebody well enough to know whether they're someone you want to commit to. But the, 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 a good relationship, one that we call secure functioning, one that is fair and just and, and sensitive, that's based on mutuality, should not be so hard. Uh, the whole purpose of having these kind of relationships is to make life easier, not harder, so that we take things off the table that would scare us. Mm-hmm. that would make us concerned, that would use resources, such as will the relationship exist tomorrow or am I, uh, am I the most important? Is the relationship the most important thing? Things like this people agree on because it makes life easier and then they stick to the, these agreements because they bec- they're principles. Um, they're things that we believe in that allow us to be fully resourced and to do things we ordinarily wouldn't do. In other words, To be together as a team properly, working together like cop car partners, um, means uh, to uh, make life easier so we can succeed at what we want to succeed in. It's not about hard. It's about uh, about making agreements and being there devoted to uh, to our principles. Doctor, you believe that it's not necessary for us to search for a soulmate, and yet that's what most people do. We search for that elusive soulmate. So why do you believe this is a bad practice? Well, you said it yourself, Joan. You said elusive. Uh (laughs) I mean, if it's so elusive, that's a depressing thought. Uh, Not only am I going to have to go out and date a lot and be with people that I don't really want to spend time with, but that elusive person may never even come into my field. It it isn't true. We, we, We only pair bond by recognition. We don't pair bond with strangers. So anybody we actually will continue with for a long period is someone we we recognize, somebody who's familiar. And that means they have the potential for us to feel like they're our soulmate. But there are many people around that we will recognize that we could be in relationship with. There is no perfect, right? Mm -hmm. There's just good enough. And so this idea of soulmate, you know, if it's taken wrongly, can be a very depressing idea. I I don't think there really is such a thing. Um, It's a feeling. It's something when we're with someone, we start to say, boy, you know, Joan, you are my soulmate. But I don't, if I try to go and look for someone um, uh, who's a soulmate, but not someone named Joan, boy, am I going to have a hard time. Doctor, why do so many people continuously pick the wrong person? They're not actually picking the wrong person. This is an interesting thing. Because of what I said that we pick by recognition, we we pick correctly. Nature doesn't care whether we have a long-term relationship. It just cares about procreation. And so we do pick right people, but it feels wrong because we still don't know how to handle that feeling or that experience that comes with that person. So let's say I keep picking alcoholics. Well, alcoholism is a feature of something, uh, but I recognize this person. I still don't know how to handle them or an angry person or a person who isn't telling the truth. This is a familiar thing to me, Mm -hmm. but I still don't know how to deal with that person. And I think that's the bigger problem. Our picker is correct initially, but then we need our social network to tell us whether we are with uh, someone who fits into our, our culture or doesn't. 
you know, we want our friends and family, our social network to sniff this person out and to sniff us out Mm -hmm. because we're on drugs in the beginning, right? Right, We're infatuated. Yeah. So how do we break that pattern of familiarity? We can't. If you pick somebody that's too much of a stranger, there's another danger of feeling homesick, of feeling too far away. This person's too far away of what I know and what I'm comfortable with. So there's the close but not too close, uh, familiar but not too familial, and stranger but not too stranger-ish. And I think as we get older, we expand a little bit more into the world of strangeness. Um, in the beginning, we, we, we really kind of stick it close to home. The book is Wired for Dating, How Understanding Neurobiology and Attachment Style Can Help You Find Your Ideal Mate. If you would like to get more information about the book or Dr. Tatkin and his work, you can visit stantatkin.com. Dr. Tackin, in our final moments, why do you say that dating is forever? Because we have to be girlfriend and boyfriend. That's the juice. That is what drives everything. Uh, husband and wife, nice. That's very nice. But it, it, it implies certain other roles. And mother and father definitely implies different roles. And that is sexy. I think the girlfriend and boyfriend have to always exist. And that means that we see each other as girlfriend and boyfriend. We, we still behave that way. And we still do things to create that exciting, dopamine-driven love that is addictive. We know how to do that. We know the skills in which to enrich ourselves with that. And we maintain that because without it, then we begin to look for others or we begin to feel very lonely. So always keep the girlfriend and boyfriend or the girlfriend girlfriend, for that matter, boyfriend boyfriend, depending on who you're with. But that's, that's the, the message. Doctor, thank you so much for being here with us today and for providing information to help us find and build a lasting relationship. As I said, everyone's searching for love, and by practicing some of these tips, hopefully we can find it. And good luck to you, Joan, in your search (laughs) as well. Thank you, Dr. Tackin. We'll be right back. Whether you are the type of person who wears their feelings on their sleeve or you bottle your emotions up until the edge of explosion, your ability to understand and manage your emotions impacts your ability to lead. Researchers have estimated that 75% of a person's ability to succeed is linked to successfully understanding emotional intelligence. Emotions are from inside you. They are not generated from the outside. There are many inclined to believe the world happens to us instead of us happening to the world. This paradigm shift is of critical importance to the success of a business. Now imagine the power of emotional intelligence in a high-pressure crisis situation. It's even more important to be sensitive to your level of emotional intelligence in this environment. Your organization's success will depend on it. Leaders with high emotional intelligence embrace change instead of fearing it. They understand that change is a fact of life and decide to adapt quickly. They are self-aware, committed to a high level of quality in everything they do, and relate to others seeking to understand them. These qualities help the leader model resiliency for others to also adapt to change. There is no time like the present to assess our own power of emotional intelligence. If you'd like to learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website at staronprofessional.com. Do you suffer with heel pain? Hi, I am Dr. Anant Joshi, a podiatrist from Woodland Park, New Jersey, practicing at Advanced Foot Care of NJLLC. According to the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery, plantar fasciitis is the most common cause of heel pain. The condition occurs when the plantar fascia on the bottom of the foot becomes inflamed. This ligament is responsible for supporting the foot's arch. Risk factors include being obese, having a very high arch, having tight calf muscles, and participating in activities that create stress on the heel bone. Activities such as running, jumping, certain workout routines. Most people can manage plantar fasciitis with at-home treatment. Resting the foot and applying ice can reduce inflammation. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or naproxen can help with pain management. Stretching the muscles of the leg thoroughly before and after physical activity, as well as throughout the day, may help to reduce the heel pain. Wearing supportive shoes as well as custom-molded orthotics can also help relieve the heel pain. If an individual's plantar fasciitis does not get better with these treatments, see a podiatrist for further treatment options. In today's medical world, there are several non-surgical options available to get rid of plantar fasciitis permanently. If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website footpainnj.com.
The trick is to enjoy life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones ahead. I recently stumbled upon this quote by Marjorie Pay Hinckley. Marjorie's words got me to thinking about my life and how I've rushed most of it away, not being fully present or savoring the joy of any moment. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones. When I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to grow up so I could drink or go to college or even get married. When my children were infants and toddlers, I muddled through most days in anticipation of the evening when they would go to sleep, and I thought about when they would be older and more self-sufficient. When I was the caregiver for my parents, I struggled through those years frazzled and exhausted. When I held job positions that were unfulfilling, I wished for the day that I would find employment that made me happy. Looking back, I can't recall one period in my life in which I wasn't looking ahead to something different or better. The sad thing is that it took tremendous loss to wake me up. The loss of my marriage, the deaths of my parents and siblings, my children growing up and moving on with their lives. Now, I strive to live in the present moment. All those quotes about leaving the past behind and not worrying about the future are so true. When you live in the past or try to anticipate the future, you miss the here and now. So what can you do? When you're dealing with a challenge, look for the positive and learn from the experience. If you're caring for a sick loved one, treasure every minute because I promise you one day you would give anything to nurse that person again. If your children are driving you crazy, remember that sooner than you'll like, they will be moving out and starting their own lives. All the seemingly insignificant moments, both good and bad, are as Paul Anka said, the times of your life. Enjoy them all. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss Managing Expectations. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. It's always good to be with you, Joan. Thanks for having me. Amy, many of us live a life that is governed by expectations. For the purpose of today's discussion, how do you define expectations? An expectation, Joan, is really when we're living in anticipation that something will go a specific way, right? And most often, we want it to go a way that works out best for us, that's compatible with what we're hoping for will happen. So for example, as mothers, we have expectations that our kids will behave when we visit their grandparents, or our kids will want to do what we want to do. Right? But we know, Joan, that isn't always the case. Well, you know, Amy, I know in my life, so much of the pain that I've experienced was the result of all of the woulda, coulda, shouldas in my mind, how I thought things were supposed to be. So how do you manage expectations? What do you do personally to help you get through all of those disappointments? I think what's really important, Joan, is for all of us to recognize that expectations are contingent upon other people, other people and outside situations, outside of ourselves. And as we know, we really only have control of ourselves. So I encourage clients to manage their intentions, which is what each of us as individuals work to bring about, right? We want to bring about our certain intentions in any situation. So I, I speak with mothers about managing expectations, meeting your kids where they are, and encouraging them to be their best selves, but knowing you only have just so much control of that. So what's key, be aware of what my intentions are and be aware of how I'm bringing those forth and bringing my best self-worth. So for example, I've had you know mothers who are constantly saying, oh, my kids are so crabby in the morning while they're getting ready for school, whether it's online or in person right now with this new world. But you know, I always remind them that what is their intention? I've learned over the years um, when my kids were in elementary school that my intention was to have a calm, peaceful morning routine. If the kids woke up and they were crabby, they woke up on the wrong side of the bed, my intention was still for myself 
to be peaceful. So instead of letting my girls, I have daughters, push my buttons, right, I would simply choose not to escalate the situation by yelling. And this takes practice, right? Um, But I would keep encouraging myself. Sometimes it would need to be walk away. But I would make sure that my intentions were peaceful. Of course, there's a certain sense of respect that needs to be worked out in every situation, and that's a whole different topic, um, healthy boundaries and respect. But my intentions were peaceful. And what I found ended up happening was because I kept sticking to my intentions of a peaceful, calm morning, that's what we ended up having. You just shared with us an example, a story about something you do personally to manage your expectations. Is there an exercise or some strategy that you can offer to help us begin to implement that practice, to help us manage what we're expecting? Absolutely, Joan. So when I work with clients, when I work with mothers, we have an exercise and I call it letting go of expectations. And the key is to keep your good intentions. So if your intention is to be patient, accepting, funny, lighthearted, calm, um, you know, uh, respecting boundaries, we need to keep those intentions, but we need to be open as to how they'll manifest, right, in any certain situation. And I know this sounds really challenging, but um, let me give you an example. You know, I often say this to my moms. Pretend that you're going to a movie. You're sitting in a darkened theater, and and, and just pretend we don't know anything about the movie. All we know is the title, right? So, for example, all we know is that the name of our child, right? And we're sitting there, um, and the film is about to start. It's completely unknown. And while some situations that are unknown can be frightening, they can also be exciting. So let's view this as an exciting type of unknown. That's how I encourage my moms to live every day. And typically, we all have pretty routine lives. But when we really think about it, we really don't know how the day will turn out. And so we can start to live it more openly when we let go of having a certain expectation. Let go of those expectations. And when we do, we open ourselves up to possibilities And we also open ourselves up to accept our kids or other people, for that matter, as they are in that moment. So we're, you know, we're giving space for people and events in our lives to arrive differently. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, you can follow her on her Instagram page at amycollins.mommentor. Or as always, you can hear more from Amy by visiting our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. We'll be right back. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.